If you're serious about betting, this is the podcast for you. Brought to you by Pinnacle.com, the Serious About Betting podcast features me, your host, Ben Cronin, and some of the biggest names and brightest minds in the world of betting. Hello and welcome to Serious About Betting on the Pinnacle podcast. We are back for another season and we have got a great guest to kick things off. Joining me today is a man who has spent plenty of time beating betting markets. He's written a book about it and has now pursued a career in the field of statistical modelling. I'm sure there's plenty to learn for anyone listening, so hopefully I ask the right questions. Welcome to the show, Elihu Foistel. How are you, Elihu? Good. It's a pleasure to be here. Good, and, and thanks for coming on. I'm, I'm sure we're going to be in for a, a good episode today. Um, as I said there in the intro, you've you've written a book, Conquering Risk, Attacking Las Vegas and Wall Street, uh, a great book that I would certainly recommend. And, and I'm sure sort of later on we'll we'll talk a little bit about the book and, and go into some detail about the lessons people can learn and, and the, the advice that you have to give. But before we get into that, let's let's find out a little bit more about you. And I'd be interested to know sort of where where did the journey begin and, and what happened in your life to, to lead you to write a book about betting? Well, the first episode in gambling uh, was in 2000 or 2001. And a friend of mine was uh, a blackjack player and he told me he could go to Las Vegas and make money counting cards. And uh, I didn't believe him. So as any reasonable person would do before they actually gamble, they'll do a lot of testing and analysis. So I wrote a a blackjack simulator could play about a million hands a second, and I could program the counting strategies and the betting strategies. And I was shocked when uh, I ran this through and you could hold three quarters of a percent, you know, just with a pretty basic counting. And that took me down the dark path. (laughs) The dark path that led you to the light. Um, Yes. Is, I mean, it's interesting to hear a lot of people that, that we've had on this podcast and people that, that spend their time betting, they they often get into it because of, of an interest in sport and, and they, they learn and develop to become an advantage player. But am I right in thinking from the sounds of it, you, you had that mindset straight away that it was going to be a, a money-making tool and it was more about winning from the start rather than sort of getting burnt early on and, and then learning from your mistakes? Uh, yeah, I, I never was a big sports fan. And while it is, it, it turned out being a great way to make money, initially it was about beating the man. Originally, the lure of it, the lure of blackjack, the lure of sports betting, was to do something you're not supposed to do, which is to beat the house. So it was, uh, I'm competitive and it was a challenge. So yeah, the, the money was a consequence, but the money was not the original goal. Now it's all about the money, but originally it wasn't. And um, in, in terms of the before those days betting and the blackjack stuff, I'm assuming there must have been quite a, in terms of education and, and skill set and learnings to get to that point. What 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 field of study did you pursue or, or what sort of career path did you follow that enabled you to to build that model and, and run sort of a million hands per second or, or whatever it was? Well, I studied computer engineering and mathematics in undergrad, and I did a lot of programming. I used to be a BBS host. I ran a computer bulletin board system, and I wrote a lot of games on it. So I learned most of my, uh, I don't want to say I'm a programmer, but I learned how to create code that sometimes works, uh, writing bulletin board games that people would play back in the days when they would dial up with their you know, computer, would dial up internet, and only one person could play at a time. And was there... Um... Was there sort of a career that that was run alongside these these first instances of of betting, or was it something that you were you were fairly young and it was something you dipped your toe in to start with and and then went from there? Well, originally I was a, a lawyer, so I went to you know undergrad. I went to law school straight after that, and I was a practicing lawyer full time for close to nine years. Uh, in but you know two thousand, I've been a lawyer for five years. I you know wet my toes in blackjack. Which turned out it's a great way to teach, uh, you know, a critical skill, which is money management. You know, blackjack is a very easy skill to measure because the edges are so clearly defined. You know, you, your edges will be less when you make mistakes, but it's very good for risk analysis, which uh, is probably the most important skill a person needs before they go into sports betting. And then uh, a year later, 2001, uh, a, a acquaintance of mine from Notre Dame. Uh, introduced me to sports betting and that's a, another story <laughs> and to so if you if, i mean 
putting myself in your shoes, you've, you've pursued a career in law. I mean, obviously, it takes a, a lot of commitment and time in terms of your, your studies to get to that point. What was the what was the point where you made that decision to think, right, I'm going into this full time. I'm, I'm better suited to the, the betting game than perhaps I might be in terms of law. Or is it is it something that's always running conjunction with what you're doing? Uh, in 2004, I stopped the full time practice of law and I still I still dabble in law part time. Uh, mainly I do pro bono cases. If I see somebody's getting screwed, I tend to help them, but it's no longer about the money. So from 2004 on, a majority of my time was spent, you know, betting and modeling. And what were those from sort of, if we put a point down at, at 2004, what were those, what were those early days like when you, you first got started? Was it was it kind of the one man grind that, that everyone sees? Was it was it all consuming and, and sort of a challenge or, or were there the early signs that, that you could achieve success quite easily and, and just kind of optimize things and, and make more and more money? Well, I started in 2001 and by 2004, it was costing me money to work as a lawyer because it's it was more profitable, you know, more profitable to just bet. Uh, but back, I mean, that was that was the golden age. I mean, in two, 2001 was a very different market than it was today. I mean, 2001, you know, most people with discipline could win at it. Uh, it's it's a much more difficult market today. And are we talking your your activity? Was that the was it sort of bricks and mortar in Vegas, or were you you predominantly doing offshore? Was it was it a combination of both? Mostly offshore. Although I did, you know, I did do some work with some groups in Vegas. And is that, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you did, did you get to a point where you sort of set up a, a group syndicate type thing? What was the, what was the kind of the, the setup there and what was required with like organization and, and day-to-day running and something like that? Uh, that that's a, that's a, a big question. Uh, for a, a group betting, you have a, a lot of pieces that you need in the puzzle. You need people who actually do the betting. You have to figure out what you're betting. And for that, you need the modelers. For the modeling, you need data. So you have to have, you know, uh, you know, a data scraper to give you whatever data you need, not just historical, but often, you know, day-to-day updating. And then you also need accounting. Now, you can do all this yourself, but there's so much work to do. Uh, it's it's very difficult to do it all your all your own. And if you're spending time betting, or if you're spending time accounting, or if you're spending time learning you know, HTML to program your own scraping, that's time you're not spending on your highest value added. So it's, you know, you need probably three or four people at a minimum to do a, a big operation. And the more, you know, if you want more, you need more traders and outs. <laughs> um, and was your, so it, it seems like people basically had their, their specialized area within the group and was your specifically the modeling side of yes, things? Yes. And I've always tried to avoid getting entangled in the other stuff. I mean, I do a little bit, you have to do some betting to make sure that, uh, that your model works and that you, things are running as you expect and that your traders are doing what you expect. But, you know, for the most part, I try to stay out of that day to day. And then, I mean, not to, to dive too much into it, but I'm sure people will be interested to know. Now, if there's there's certain areas that people have to specialize in in order for a, a group or a syndicate, whatever people want to call it, to actually operate successfully, um, how do things work in terms of a split? Is it the guy that's that's finding what to bet on gets sort of more out of it? Or is it that, that the people actually putting the bets down? Is Is it sort of is it all even across the board or, or do you work things out based on who brings what to the table? Yeah, it's very, who brings what, um, but you know, what skills does each person have in, in my group? It's easy. Cause it's, uh, it, it works well because we, people have different risk tolerances and the risk tolerances sort everything out. I mean, we, we mesh pretty well. And is there, is there any stories from the the early part of your career whether it was when you were doing things on a on an individual basis or when you started the group stuff that you might that kind of sticks out in your memory maybe as a, a warning or something that you think look we're, we're only 10 minutes into this podcast if you want to listen anymore or you want to bet anymore this is the one thing you should you should know before you actually start out i i made this mistake or, or i did this wrong and you need to know it uh yes the worst thing you can do, and which I especially did as a beginner, is to overestimate your advantage. And my, you know, my history is filled with dozens of catastrophic mistakes. I look back and I just cringe at some of the dumb things I did. 
But I think it, like one of the worst ones I thought uh, was data mining and overbetting because of that. And in like, my first year, I didn't know better. We were looking at how you know home teams did in you know the playoffs, and we saw that like in the, you know certain rounds of the playoffs. This was back you know, eighteen years ago. Yeah, I think divisional home teams did well against the spread, and we ran the Z scores, and it looked just looking at a, a certain subset uh, that this would be the play. So we said, not only do we have an advantage, we're going to parlay them because the advantage is so big. And then we promptly lost every single bet that week. And uh, which you know, the, the moral of the story is it's not enough to see an observation. You have to explain why. And if I had known that then, I would have said, whatever, this is just noise. But you have to learn from mistakes or be smarter than me. <laughs> and sort of when you say data mining for, for people who are listening to this, you might not be too sort of familiar with what you're talking about. That's basically digging into to data sets and, and finding patterns that maybe only exist because you've looked specifically for certain things. Yes. So, you know, there's a, a common test people use when they're looking at data is called a Z-score. And like with a Z-score of plus two, that means that if you looked at 40 events, maybe you'd have what you'd, one of those, you'd see the observation you had. So there's a, a one in 40 chance that you'd see this observation just based on random chance. But what people don't sometimes think about is if I test 40 different systems, 40 different approaches, I'm going to find one of them that looks really good. And it's not because it's necessarily good. It's because I just tried looking at all kinds of different things. And so it's very critical that you not only uh, test things, but you can understand and explain why. All right. And just quickly before we, we do get on to this, I mean, some of the things like like the Z-score stuff is, is very eloquently explained in the book. But it, just to, to kind of paint a picture of you and, and before we dive into that, one of the the most fascinating things I found after speaking to you very briefly over email and stuff like that was that you actually did. I mean, you did some work for Pinnacle, but you also did some, write, some writing for Pinnacle as well. Am I right? Yeah, I used to be the, the content writer for the Pinnacle Pulse when Simon Noble was the head of marketing. I was the ghost writer, I think, yes. And are you uh, are you aware that the, the Pulse still lives on today, sort of 10, 10 plus years later? Uh, yes, I've seen every, every once in a while I would check it. And so. what was the... What is the the motivation then for whether it's the the post type stuff that you were doing? Obviously, the book is a big one, but just a, a general kind of philosophy of of helping betters out and and sort of giving them advice and whatever it might be. What what is the what is the sort of motivation to do that for you? Well, there's two components. Uh, first is it's, it's fun to socialize and work with people. Uh, so it's I guess it's three things. One is fun. Two, uh, when you give out for free, you end up getting a lot of information. So I can't tell you how many times uh, information or things have just landed in my lap that ultimately be that are ultimately worth a lot. And the third thing is anything you know today will be absolute, obsolete in three years. Anything I give out is not going to, co- you know, maybe it'll lower my profitability two years from now when people figure out how to exploit it. But anything you're doing is going to be obsolete. So you always have to keep moving forward. So the cost of giving away stuff is never as high as people think it is. There's a, I mean, there's a, there's a line sort of within the industry and a lot of people say that they don't want to give anything out and kind of contradicting what you're saying in terms of like that there isn't any damage that can be done because by the time people actually work it out, it, it, it'll become sort of obsolete. Do you think those people are speaking truths or is it just sort of a mystery from the industry that has just sort of carried through and people just believe it without actually thinking about thinking about it i mean you can do damage to yourself and there's stuff that i don't give out uh so you you obviously measure what you're giving out but i think people overestimate uh the cost because not only you know say i give you the i give you the secret sauce here's the secret sauce here's how to make 10 percent equity plays in this market then for you to recreate it if, if i don't just you know you have to get a database, you have to redo the analysis, you have to uh, build it. And if you have the skill set, it still may take you a year. And if you don't have the skill set, it's worthless to you. So it's uh, now giving out plays, I don't, I think that's a, a much worse idea. Um, if you give out plays, you either risk getting front run or there's no upside to it. Giving out a play, the person wins or they lose, they, they're going to lose almost half the time and they're always angry when they do. So uh, you know, I think giving out theory advice, helping people do analysis, that's positive. But giving out plays has never been a good thing. 
And so as someone then that, that likes to, to help others and give out useful information, I mean, the book is, is absolutely full of it, sort of cover to cover. How, how does it sit with you, the, the emergence of this sort of tipster tout industry where, where people are just churning out plays and, and stuff like that? And people almost, I say almost, they, they definitely are buying into that dream, the, the get rich quick thing that follow these picks and, and you'll make money. How does that sit with you? Well, it, everyone had, you know, it's just the way they choose to make money. People choose to throw their money away. Uh, but the people who are paying for these tips and not uh, not doing their own work, they're going to lose regardless, whether they lose through a tipster or lose on their own work. Uh, and they're, you know, they're part of the food chain. They're feeding the people that do the work. So it's whether they pay a tipster to lose or lose on their own, I don't think it really matters. All right, then. Well, let's let's get on to the book. I'll, I'll kind of tease out a little bit. Conquering Risk, Attacking Vegas and Wall Street. We, 10 years it's it's been out. Um, as I said, there's there's still plenty of stuff in there that will, one, it will resonate, but also inform people that, that read it. Um, anyone who's who's listening to this and hasn't, I can tell you it's, it's one of the best book books I've read. If you're interested in this podcast and you're listening to it, I can I can tell you you're definitely gonna gonna enjoy the book. Um, as the title suggests, it's it's all about the world of risk, what it means, how to manage it. Obviously, most importantly, how to take advantage of it and and benefit financially. Um, there's a, a couple of elements to it: Vegas and Wall Street, two very distinct and different things. Now, this is a sports betting podcast. We're, we're going to focus on sports betting today, but I'm also interested to learn a bit more about the the distinction between sports betting and, and financial trading from your perspective. Um, I think you say in the book that Wall Street is is tougher and nastier than, than sports betting. But in terms of the, the practices and the, and the approaches that are required in, in those two fields, what, what are some of the, the key differences for well, you? I would actually look at the similarities. The two big similarities between financial investing and stock betting uh, or such financial investing and sports betting, uh, the only the two most important things you have to do are control your risk and control your fees. So in in stock betting, you do that by having non-correlated plays and not having too large a position in any one stock. And I know lots of people who put all their money in one stock, and that's just as bad as putting your whole bankroll on, on the Super Bowl on one play. Um, so diversification and then min- fee minimization by either paying reduced juice in, with sports books or line shopping. And in the case of stock betting, avoiding mutual fees or mutual funds that have high fees or ch- churning through trading. Is there, is there a reason that, I mean, someone of, of your sort of level of intelligence and, and proven skill and, and stuff like that, is there a reason that you, you found yourself in the sports betting industry as opposed to the finance industry? Um, I just kind of stumbled into it. You know, I guess I could do finance, but finance seems boring. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I mean, this is, is, is I, the, the thing I love about sports modeling is you're always thinking and finding out new things all the time. You're always finding new relationships and just it's, it's a weird, weird study of reality. And it's just it's the things you learn, the things you see are just it's fascinating. So it's like you're reading a book with a crazy new chapter every day and you just don't know what's going to come at you. And that's I mean, I think that's what I love about it a lot of people sort of see it as a as a puzzle don't they and you often find that many sort of great gamblers that people know are also fond of these sort of board games or or strategy stuff is is that the same with you do you find yourself playing sort of games and things where you're not involved in sports betting (laughs) yes i have a collection of probably over 100 war games Um, oh wow and you know i've played some backgammon also so it's uh, yeah I'm i'm a pretty big gamer and is that would you would you say that that is sort of that's that's helped you in terms of mindset and approach and stuff like that 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 mentality is is helped you in terms of your success with sports betting? Yeah, but I would say sports betting has helped me become a better board gamer than the other way around. You know, seeing I can remember, you know, twenty five years ago playing Axis and Allies, and I don't know if you ever played it, but you know, you roll dice for attacking units, and you can make an estimate of the odds of winning any battle, and. I would. I remember. I would be infuriated when I would be a big favorite and I would lose a battle, and the whole game would collapse. And now, uh, having done this for a while, the sports betting and understanding risk better, uh, I'm in a better position when I play the games to see bad outcomes and how to plan for bad outcomes before they occur, 
and then you often are more able to turn losing positions into winning positions. And just back to the 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 finance side of things, and I know you you sort of mentioned those two key um, similarities in terms of the risk and, and minimizing fees and stuff like that. Is there there are two industries that parallels are, are really often drawn across, and and people listening to this is as I said about. Sometimes you just have a sports fan that gets into betting. You happen to just just stumble into it, or or it found you. Is there is there a reason why you think a successful sports better might struggle with financial trading and 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 vice versa, or is it basically a case of if you can manage risk, optimize risk, and and you know how to minimize your fees, then then you will thrive in either of those two. Uh, I I don't think you guarantee that you'll thrive. Uh, the advantage in sports betting, you have so many opportunities. You know, in a year, you may have ten thousand plays, and if you're if you win fifty three percent at one ten, you're going to make a lot of money. In finance, uh, instead of having a ten thousand plays in a year, you have you may have your twenty plays, and you're very subject to the whims of the market. So, you know, your long term in uh, finance might be twenty years, whereas your long term in sports betting could be a year. So the, the turnover makes uh, skill play out much faster in sports than it does in finance. And do you, do you think we're seeing sort of a, a shift in sort of perception of, of those industries as well? I mean, previously it was kind of aspirational to, to, to work on Wall Street and whatever it might be. And, and sports betting to some was kind of seen as this gray sort of seedy underworld type thing that people did whereas now it's almost i mean me personally speaking and, and from what you see in the industry it's it's kind of on a par and sports betters are perhaps more respected in in society than maybe they would have been do you think that's fair to say i don't think society thinks about professional sports betters now it sports betting has become much more mainstream in the u.s many of the states are have legalized local sports books uh, and you can bet you know like in Indiana, I can probably bet on six different sports books, at least online. Uh, so people are more aware of it, but I don't think anyone thinks anyone who bets sports wins long term. That's just kind of a, something people don't think about. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very commonplace and, and it's interesting. Obviously, I work for a company like Pinnacle who, who doesn't do those those kind of things. But coming from a, the the European side of things and, and the UK specifically, where where limiting customers banning customers for for basic advantage play strategy is is really commonplace is that something that if you're if if you are in that upper bracket of people that can win and, and I'm, I'm sure you kind of experience it or have experienced it how does how does that sit with you in in terms of how bookmakers operate is it is it an industry where it's fair game or, or should they be liable to to have a level playing field and, and not put those practices in place? Well, for a minute, forget about what's fair and look at the purpose of sports betting. The only reason sports betting is legal anywhere is so that they can raise taxes for the country. And if a person can legally walk into your living room and take your couch out and do it over and over, but you could ask him not to come in, you know, you're going to ask him not to come in because that, you know, protects the business and protects the tax revenue. So, you know, I sure I wish I could go to every book and take their money, but I understand from a practical point of view, sports betting exists to make money for the countries for taxes. And if I interfere with that, they're going to disrupt that. And is it something that when you see it get get sort of more and more publicized, is it something that you 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 ever vocalize or or, or do you just see it as you're doing your job and, and that's all you should focus on and, and not what is fair or, or what is right and wrong? Uh, I don't focus on that. What I do, though, is it affects where I'm going to spend my energy. So I'm going to target sports where I can play in places that are not going to throw me out. All right. Let's uh, obviously end to to be able to do that and find the places that are going to accept your bets and, and be able to get a bet down. There's there's going to be a lot of hard work involved. Um, I think you, you, you mentioned very early on in the book these these hurdles or the things that, that people have to cut, overcome. And you mentioned one just a minute ago in terms of the, the house edge and that, that 53% mark on, on sides and totals and stuff. And obviously that's going to be a lot more with, with books with bigger margins, but the, the other two sort of ones that, that jump out to me or that I'd like to talk about are the, the mathematical expertise and the, the level of commitment that's required to, to achieve success and, and see the fruits of your labor, if you will. 
Um, so in terms of those two, do you think, can they be taught or, or do people have some kind of natural affinity to, to numbers and to get to the level that's required? Uh, I think it can be taught. The level of math required for 90% of the work is just algebra. It doesn't take a lot of math. I mean, if you have algebra and you have statistics, now you're at 98% of the work. There's only, you know, 2% more. So, you know, any, the, the, the pure math skills aren't that hard. The harder part is just getting the experience and, you know, understanding what to do and what not to do. And when it comes to commitment and, and more, I mean, to me, I see that almost as like a, a personality trait. Is, is that something that, that people can work on and, and get better at? But, or again, is it something that you have to be a, a committed or a dedicated individual to, to be able to win long-term in sports betting? I don't know how a person develops a work ethic, but in sports betting, you need to put in your time continuously. You know, it doesn't have to, you can take any one day off, but anything you know is gone in three years. So you always have to be putting knowledge in your bank so you can cash out later. And how, how has that been for you in your kind of betting journey? Has there been times where you sort of get there and you think, oh, can I do this anymore? Is the motivation there? Or have you always managed to, to push through? Uh, I've been offloading more and more of the work. So figuring to focus on what I like to do. So I like, you know, the modeling and the analysis, that's, that's my passion. And so I'm finding ways to do less and less of the uh, grunt work. And that makes it a lot easier for me. So then, you know, if you, if you put in, you know, in, in a day, you say, what am I going to do today? You know, what's the most important thing you can do? And if you put yourself to your best use for two hours every day, you're going to be more productive than somebody who works eight hours a day, but fills their time up with a lot of grunt work. So one of the things I do is I have what I call my A-brain time. I have, you know, two, three hours of peak performance. It starts after I've had half a cup of coffee and it's done by about lunchtime. And I try to do my hardest long-term thinking stuff, you know, during that window each day, but every day, just a little bit. I love the, I love that as a, an idea or, or a, a mentality. I'm, I'm sure that can, that can be adopted by many people for more productive results and thinking of myself as well. Um, but it, if you could then, let's say you could build this like $6 million man type thing that, that's made up of, of certain components in a better and the maybe the certain elements of, of your group that everyone specializes in. What are, what are skill sets or traits that, that you really think betters need or, or should really sort of focus on and, and, and work towards in order to achieve success? Uh, the most important is honesty. You, ha- you, know, you have to trust anyone you work with. And uh, that's you know, if you have that, you can work around everything else. Uh, people have to have a, a minimum level of math competence. If a person can't do algebra and do it quickly, there's no role they're going to have on the team. But I think everything else, you know, you can teach. And let's let's talk about the the mathematical side of things, and in terms of modeling, and and obviously what is core to to what you've done in in betting. Modeling in sports betting and, and, and how it works in practice, what was what what's that process like for you? How much of your time is is dedicated to to is it building new models? Is it working on existing models? What's the the day to day like for you? I'm usually trying to uh, look forward to build new models. So you you build a model, you check it, you you run it, you make sure it does what you want it to do. Once it's where you want it to be, you put it on the shelf and you let someone use it. And I stop looking at it unless there's a problem and move on to the next thing. And are those, are those utilized back then? Or, or as you've, you said, you are, you are sort of still betting now Were those utilized for your, your main market, shall we say? So things like sides and totals, or, or were you also doing things where you're looking at sort of arbitrage or, or wherever it might be? What was your sort of general pattern for betting? When I first started, and this was stupid of me, I went after NFL sides and totals, and that is the dumbest thing I could have done. Uh, that is the single toughest way to win, is to try to model NFL sides and totals. Uh, I shifted away from that to smaller markets, and uh, I still do, you know, I, I, don't do I, don't, I don't even do pregame anymore. I've quit doing pretty much all pregame analysis, and the main focus now is on in-game betting and derivatives, where it's much, much easier to take money from people. And if I mean you, you kind of said that you're you're happy to to give away 
not the secret sauce maybe but some stuff that that can't really harm you if if we're talking about in-game stuff and, and modeling then what what advice could you give to people listening to this or what insight could you give in in terms of what you're doing to try and beat markets uh i get 20 years of data i break it down play by play uh i create game states and you analyze how a game state affects the outcome so it's 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 a lot of work um and there, I just gave you the secret sauce, but it's now, 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 now go out and do it. <laughs> what about with the, so with the modeling then, I'm guessing as well, there's, there's an element of, of failure that you, you have to deal with. And now some people will turn that into a positive, but, but how, how often do you come, how often are you faced with failure sort of on a, on a day to day, week to week or month to month basis? Ah, uh, see, I haven't had a losing year in 15 years. So I don't look at it. Now, are you talking about winning streaks or are you talking about uh, personal failures? Like when I build a model that doesn't work. I, I, I try things. Yeah, I try things all the time that fail miserably. You know, if you try, you know, maybe a, a quarter of my models turn out to be good enough to bet. Uh, three quarters of the approaches, uh, you know, you look at them and you test them and you study them and you see that this isn't going to work. So, um, but, you know, a key thing when you're developing ideas uh, is to look and see, you know, is to test them pretty critically before you start putting money on them. And then when you sort of talk about testing and I know you, you spoke about the Z-score earlier, what, what level of testing or what approach are you taking to testing models? Well, there's, there, there's different approaches. Uh, it's much more difficult to test in-game stuff uh, than it is to test uh, pre-game. With pre-game, you know, a classic way to test it is to get openers and closers look and see how you do against openers, see how you do against closers. And ideally you're going to beat openers and do less well against closers. So, you know, you see that the closing line generally moves your way. Um, and so that if you bet later, you'll do worse. If you do that and you're beating both and you have a large sample, you can say, oh, this pregame model is probably pretty good. Uh, in game though, it's, it's a different beast because there's not, a, it's difficult to get historical data. Uh, but fortunately in game modeling, the in game markets, in most sports are not nearly as efficient as the pregame are, which makes them, you know, much easier to beat, especially if you're looking at the smaller stuff in the in-game markets. And with the, the closing lines, are we talking about pinnacle there? Do you, how do you sort of what, what benchmark or what measuring stick do you use in that regard? You want to use, I'm going to say the best one and the best one depends on the sport. So uh, the, the two metrics that make a closing line good would be the, the total uh, vigorous that they're charging and the amount of uh, the bet size they're taking. So for example, in 2005, Pinnacle had the lowest juice and biggest limits on most US sports. So if I were looking at 2005, I would use US. If I were looking at US sports today, I wouldn't use Pinnacle, even though they have lower juice because there are other books that take much, much larger limits. Um, and now, the different ways to to measure success there'll be there'll be some people out there that might say oh, i went eight and two on the nfl this weekend or or i'm up 10 units sort of over the week can you just maybe talk a little bit about why it's dangerous to take that approach oh sure uh the goal is to make money not to make units now i so a person who goes eight and two laying minus 600 money lines is going to lose money so a, a win record in the absence shows absolutely nothing. The better, the, the two better things to measure it by are what is their return on their risk and, you know, how much volume can they get? So I have some plays that hold, you know, even 20%. But if I limit myself to my best plays, to my 20%, I'm going to leave so much money on the table. Uh, so I, you know, typically if I can bet with a 2% edge, I'm going to bomb away on it. And if... So it's, it's a trade-off, you know, the higher edge you get, sure, the greater, the greater your win rate, but going for the lower hanging fruit means you get a lot more volume and ultimately make more money that way. And with, obviously with a, with an edge and in terms of bankroll and, and optimizing and stuff like that, and, and you talk about risk at, that, at the very outset of this and how important it is and, and quite a lot about it in the book is, are you using like Kelly Criterion as, as your staking method? Uh, that's a starting point. So uh, initially, I think I was using a third Kelly, but after a while, in most cases, the Kelly criterion becomes irrelevant because you're going to bet uh, the, the, the better, the, the bigger question isn't how much are you going to bet, 
but at how bad of a price will you take it? Because if you want, you know, if you want to bet 10 times what the market is, you have to either take worse and worse prices or rebet at the same place at a worse price. So you have to know, you know, have a strategy and know how low you're willing to go. So, and by that comment, then I'm guessing the the bulk of the stuff that that you're doing nowadays is you're waiting late in the day just for limits to go up, or or is there stuff where you're getting is is there any sports where you can get down early, or it's it's worthwhile to get in at the the better prices but lower limits? In most cases, I'm going to wait to the last hour. Um, if you're betting derivatives and you're not doing pregame handicapping, you go. There's two reasons you wait till late in the day. First is that your main price, your anchor price, the spread and the total are going to typically be the most accurate uh, in the hour before the market closes. And you want the most accurate price for the main lines when you're pricing your derivatives. And the second, as you said, is that you can bet more, you know, closer to the game you get. And with the with the in-game stuff and, and sort of limits and how that works, is is it is it an automated system that you're using in order to get bets down? How, how does that work? Uh, I have a model. Uh, Models for different sports. A trader runs a model and manually bets. I've, I did do some automated betting a while ago, but uh, I ended up losing horribly when the model misfired. Not horribly, but enough to where I, I pulled the plug on it. And so for now, you know, maybe at some point in the future, I'll go back to automated live betting. But for now, it's all manual. And when you when you talk about derivatives, and, and I'm sure people listening to this podcast will, will know what you're talking about and the, the markets that are on offer to people, but obviously a lot of people are just going to be fixed on, on the pregame stuff and, and things like that. So if you could maybe just talk to us a little bit more about the the offerings that are there with derivatives and also why there's, there's more value in them for you or, or why you're more interested in them. Uh, a derivative is any market that you can price just looking at the full game spread in total or whatever you know prices define the market. So for example, you can bet on will a team score three times in a row in NFL. And that is a, if you have a database, you can create very good pricing just as a function of the spread in the total. Um, and for me, I think this typically offers a lot more value than betting the full game because one, uh, it, the, the limits are lower and the lower the limits are, the less energy a book puts into it. And the less energy a book puts into it, the easier it is to beat. So, and the second thing is you, you pick up some more value when you have line drift. Most sports books don't automatically move their derivatives as the line changes. So if Kansas City is an eight-point favorite and they, you know, in the two hours before the game, they move to 10, the, you know, and let's say the total goes up three points, uh, you know, say it goes up from 53 to 56, which is, you know, pretty big moves then your odds on a team scoring three times in a row are going to go up a lot. At least the theoretical odds should. But most derivatives do not move automatically based on... I mean, some books do, but most books don't move them automatically as the main the anchor lines drift. So you end up having two sources of errors in these derivatives. You have the derivatives being mispriced initially, and you have the derivatives not moving automatically. And uh, it's basically just a way to print money. <laughs> And so some people that, that may be getting started out with derivative markets, they might trust a, a an efficient bookmaker, whoever it might be, and that the odds that, that they provide from pre-game, from pre-game and sort of scale back from that, from their derivative modeling. But am, am I right in guessing that, that you're modeling pre-game stuff and then subsequently derivatives off of that? No, I've, I completely skipped pre-game modeling now. And I just my assumption is the market prices for the main matches is correct. So the the sports that you bet on, we're we're looking at live and, and in play stuff. Is there what's the sort of weighting in in terms of the action that you get down across different sports? Ah, uh, <laughs> um, a lot of U.S. football. That's probably U.S. football and soccer are probably my two biggest ones. And is there is there a reason behind that? Is that again down to limiting limits, or or is it down to those sports being more suitable to to the type of models you're building and the type of betting that you're doing? Those are the ones that I've done models recently that are still good models, and the things I spend energy on are based on you know the limits and how efficient I think the markets are. So I would love to take, I would love to take another crack at tennis pregame, which I did very well at for four years. Uh, I have a story, if you want, about uh, what happens after three years in a model. Of course, let's let's hear it. So I had I, I built a, a a fairly simple tennis model back around 2010. It used ELO ratings 
to assign how good a player's service was and how good their return rating was. And then it would compare ELO ratings between the service and return rates of each to figure out the, you know, the service hold. And you could, with a service hold, you could price a money line, a spread, and a total. And for three years, it was holding against closing lines. It's holding, you know, 2%. And uh, it was, it was great. Life was great. I was smart. I was making money to do, do, do. How can I bet more? And then a peculiar, you know, a peculiar thing happened at uh, matchbook. Uh, after three and a half years, you know, you put an order and usually the line would move. I would put it in an order, you know, you've take, you know, your $500 and you wait for another $500 order to go up. And sometimes it would get replaced with like a $5,000 order. I was like, huh? So when, you know, general rule is when someone's willing to bet against you, you're wrong. So, uh, you know, and you'll see this when you're betting things with variable bet size based on how much the market takes, the, the more you're betting, the bets that get filled larger, you do worse on. But then the thing that let me knew my model was done, aside from the fact that I wasn't beating closers as much, I had a, a, a syndicate contact me offering to oppose my bets. They offered, they would match some bets for as much as I wanted. They wouldn't match them all, but they'd match some of them. And at that point, I knew I was done. And how much, I mean, it's an interesting question then, isn't it? Because it's how much do you think when a model's done and the, the life cycle of a model reaches its end, how much of it is other betters catching up 100 how much is 100 percent. is it the sports books are irrelevant it's just the other betters and then there i'm guessing those other betters are what's feeding into the sports book which then is ultimately eroding yes. your edge and, and stuff like that yep and making your model extinct and the the figure of of three years in terms of a model, what is sort of the the norm for you in terms of of something that that gains you an advantage over the market? Is it is it really up and down, or is it normally sort of around the same sort of period? Uh, three years is pretty typical. I, I can't think of anything that I was able to bet for more than four years. And with the so some of the, I, I think you you go through you sort of do a walkthrough of of some of the the models that you you had at the time that the book was written i know there was a there was an nfl was it yards per play model in there there was a, a wmba one and a, and a baseball one how do you think those models would would hold up now compared to some of the stuff that you or, or other bettors are doing how how much has changed in that time uh they would all lose money all of those are obsolete no, i mean they're first they're longer than you know three years old they're 10 years old you might be able to salvage the college football one but i think all the others are people are so far beyond that would you would you suggest that that someone could take that and use it to learn get to grips with it and 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 take things further whether that's applying that knowledge to to different data sets or different sports and markets or is it something that scrap it start from afresh and, and you'll be better off with that i think it can teach you how to think but for uh, most betters, I would say don't even bother with pregame. Just give up on it. The the groups that are beating pregame, uh, they have a combination of superior information, massively superior information, and uh, modeling and analytics. And you can't you have no chance at all without having the superior information, and not just like historical data, but you know, who is likely to be injured? Who's going to be on the injury list later? And knowing that, how good are their backups? Or how, you know, or there's so many tiny factors that the new syndicates are using now that unless you have a network of people feeding you a lot of information, you have no chance. So an individual better has no way to beat, you know, NFL or college football on game day. I don't think there's any U.S. sport that your average better can have a chance to beat on game day. And with the, I mean, that's, it's obviously a, a shift in the, in the, the industry that we've seen to the live stuff and, and things like that. What is the, the kind of experience like for you in your involvement? And, and it seems to be that it's kind of, here's the model, here's what it does, go, go and bet with it and, and we'll find out the results. Or do you, do you sit there and, and watch games and, and see how your bets do and, and stuff like that? Or is there just no interest from you in that, in that aspect? I, when I'm testing it, I'll watch it uh, just to make sure that it's the model and the game are the models working the way I expect it to. And the game is playing out the way I expect it to. Um, once I, once I've deployed it though, I check, I check my spreadsheet once in a while to see how it's doing, but I don't watch any of the games or really look at the bets. I look at the bet size to make sure that we're not over betting. And I look at the bets to make sure we don't have too many correlations. 
you know, so for example, if you're betting in soccer and you know you bet a team minus a half and you bet it over two and a half, there's going to be a high correlation there. You know, if the team covers a half, it's, there's at least one goal and more, you know, more likely two or three. So when you're doing in-game betting, you have to be mindful of the correlations so that you don't overbet your stake. And obviously, data is is going to be central to to everything that you do. And the level you're at, are you? Is everything scraped, or or are you able to to have sort of data partnerships and and have paid sort of data feeds and things like that to help you with your betting? Uh, I have a, all kinds of different agreements. Uh, you know, some people just I have lots of different ways to get data, and most you know, so most there's 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 data you use to do the analysis, and there is data you use to run the model. Um, and they're different ways. Those are two different problems. So NFL, uh, for example, NFL, you just do it manual. You know, it's a timeout. That's when you can bet the most. You put in the game state, you know, what, what's the yardage, what's the score, what's the time, how many timeouts, what, you know, down in yardage or, you know, and whatever adjustments you made. But whereas soccer, you, you need to have a feed because it's continuously changing. And that, you know, the price is materially changing every 10 seconds, even if, it looks like nothing's happening. And how long How long will go in terms of data and, and what's available or what's out there? How long will go before you see see a, a new metric or something like that? Like if we use soccer as an example and sort of the, the rise of expected goals and, and how useful that has become, and, and I'm sure it's probably something that, that you were looking at way back when, but when something like that comes up, how quickly do you look at it, try and build a model around it or, or investigate it? Or, or would you be more inclined to, to stick with what you're working on that's getting you success? Uh, you never stick to what you have. So I spend a lot of time reading. Uh, you know, I read, you know, if you look at my Amazon reviews, I read hundreds of bad books. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but it, it's important to get to try new ideas. And you know, a lot of times it doesn't work, but you look at it and explore it. And sometimes you find stuff that is really, really good. And if you get it a year or two before the market realizes it, then you're turning electricity into money. And is that always related to the, the field that you're working in? Or do you, is it sometimes just there might be an idea out there that's applied to something else? Like what is the, what does that Amazon reading list look like for you? Uh, mostly I read uh, books on sports betting or modeling or you know approaches like that. And sometimes they offer, you know, insights that are really good. Uh, sometimes they offer you insights so you don't have the way to exploit it. Like there was a really good book on golf. I, I think Every Shot Counts or something that talked, basically spelled out how to do a golf model. And it's like, wow, if only I could get the, you know, course XY data, you know, the, the courses. Or, but it's, uh, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of, there's a, a lot more bad stuff than good stuff, but there's enough new good stuff. Uh, that if you spend a lot of time reading, you'll, you'll find ways to attack problems in new ways. And if if anyone listening to this, if you were to kind of suggest any books to to get them started and get them going with with betting, what what books would you recommend? I can think of two books I would start with, and the, the most the most important thing, uh, well, I would start with Sharper and the Logic of Sports Betting. Okay, yeah, two two great books. It's um... I think they they feature their their book reviews on Pinnacle as well, but I can I can definitely agree with you on that one. And obviously, Ella, who your your book as well would would make that list. Um, all right. Well, I'd I'd like to just kind of begin to wrap up by by sort of thinking about what the future has in store, and and it's interesting to learn that your development from from pregame to in play and and sort of where the the betting industry is moving. So. What do you think that the future has in store for betting in terms of what book, bookmakers might offer and, and what people might bet on? Ah, uh, well, you have to figure out your, you know, your target audience for sports books is the 90%. They're not catering to me and they're not catering to, you know, the, the people who are trying really hard to win. They're, they're catering to the people who have no chance. So you're going to see, I think you're going to, I don't think it's going to improve that much for the professional players. You're going to see more high juice, you know, gimmick props. Uh, see things that turn over quickly because gamblers want to bet something and see it win or lose quickly. You know, and what the sports books are trying to do is basically turn a sporting event into a slot machine where you can bet on anything that is just as random as a slot machine, have it turn over very quickly so they can lose their money faster. And these types of, you know, props, unless they're horribly mispriced or blundered, 
aren't going to offer the pro players much. And what's like the your sort of timeline? Do you think if if we've we've had ten years since that book was written? Now, if we use that as a as a sort of data point, how how much more difficult have things got? Have they gotten easier? And and sort of how do you think things will develop? Is there kind of an end point? Do you think for you and your career in in sports betting? Well, that's a, a, a several different questions you asked. Pre-game is much harder. Live, because there's so much more, uh, some areas are easier, some areas are harder. If you try to go after the big markets, if you're going to bet NFL sides in-game, you're gonna, it's going to be hard. If I bet you know, Peruvian soccer live, it's going to be a lot easier. Um, as far as me and my career, I'm still having fun. You know, it's, it, it's not so much about the money. I mean, yes, it's about the money, but it's more important that I enjoy it and that I make make even more money. And and what would you be doing with your time if, if so much of it wasn't spent with the, the sports betting side of things? What else would you want to be doing? Uh, playing more computer games. <laughs> <laughs> and are we uh, talking... What, what sort more time of, what's with your, my kids. So. Yeah, what's, what's your favourite uh, computer games? Uh, well, that depends if we're talking console or non-console. Uh, Stellaris is on the PC... And the Demon Souls Dark Souls series on the PlayStation. If you like punishment, you know Dark Souls <laughs> is a good, good one to play. Um, and just lastly, I think you you spoke about in the book there was a line in, in terms of your outs or how you bet that that once one door closes or to the effect of once one door closes, another two opens. Is that still the case? Do you think? And do you think that'll be the case? Absolutely, absolutely. And people who whine about losing outs, just, you know, you're, you're always, you're, before you lose an opportunity, you're already working on the next one and looking forward and thinking. And if people, some people are lazy, people who are intellectually lazy, they find the cherry and they want to keep eating that fruit over and over and they don't want to look for new things. And then when the the tree is barren, uh, they go hungry. But, you know, the, the workers, the, the driven people, are always looking for new stuff even before things run out. And if you could have, I think I asked you early on, sort of one bit of advice or one thing to to tell betters before they begin their journey. If you could wrap up with with one thing, just as a, a point for people to remember or, or a parting piece of advice for the listeners, what would it be? Don't quit your day job. <laughs> Right, well, well, Elihu, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for you coming on. I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you. We're going to have to call it a day there, but I know our listeners will, will have a lot or, or learn a lot from today's episode. So, so thanks again, and for, for taking time out of your schedule for joining me. It's, it's much appreciated. All right, thank you. You have a good one. And thank you to everyone for listening. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. We have got plenty of other great guests lined up for the season. Remember to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform and tune in next time for Serious About Betting on the Pinnacle Podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the latest episode of the Serious About Betting Podcast. Remember to subscribe to the Pinnacle Podcast on your preferred platform to keep up to date with all of our series. You can also review the podcast, give us feedback and suggest future guests that you want to be interviewed. 